Hi, and welcome to Peace in the Middle East with Hana. From 1978 to 2003, Aaron David Miller served at the State Department as a historian, analyst, negotiator, and advisor to Republican and Democratic Secretaries of State. While he was there, Mr. Miller helped formulate U.S. policy on Middle East and Arab-Israeli peace process. Aaron David Miller has been involved in Middle Eastern peacemaking for over four decades. He is one of the most knowledgeable and analytical people about the region. It is an honor to have him here as a guest today and to hear his unique perspectives on the current issues of the Middle East. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to this episode, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Um, thanks so much. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Great. Uh, barely anyone has been involved in the Arab-Israeli peace process as long as you have. What do you see as the most significant changes to the Arab-Israeli dynamic in the past four decades? Uh, it's a complicated question. I think I would answer it in two ways. Um, one is pretty positive. The other is pretty negative. Um, if you looked at the Arab-Israeli confrontation line in 1948 and you looked at the Arab-Israeli confrontation line in 2020, you'd have to say that there's been a pretty extraordinary transformation for the better. Egypt and Israel signed a full treaty of peace in 1979, and it's hardly perfect. I would argue it's pretty cold. But it's changed the, the strategic balance of power. It's eliminated the prospects of a major confrontation, certainly a two-front war. It's drawn Egypt closer to the United States. And frankly, in, in 2020, I could say that relations between Egypt and Israel are, are pretty close when it comes to military matters and security and intelligence matters. Uh, it, it also survived, the, the treaty that is, the murder of the man who signed it, Amor Sadat, as well as 13 months of Muslim Brotherhood rule. And that, to me, reflects the reality that it has served both the interests of the Egyptian and the Israeli public. If you look around the confrontation line, you would then go to Jordan and you'd see that, in, that the 1994 treaty, which was signed by King Hussein, the late King Hussein and late Yitzhak Rabin in the Arabah Valley, has created a situation in which Israel's longest and least defensible border with Jordan uh, is pretty secure. It didn't involve an exchange, significant exchange of territory as the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty did. But it was an important uh, addition to the widening circle of relationships that Israel had with key Arab states. In the 90s, uh, when there was something that you and I could probably describe as the possibility of a peace process with promise, Israel also managed to ex expand its relations uh, with key Gulf states, with Morocco, with Tunisia, with Yemen, with Qatar. Uh, with the UAE. Uh, and recently what we've seen in the Abraham Accords is a rather dramatic manifestation uh, far, far from what people, including myself, ever believed was possible. And I had a piece in the Washington Post in September which basically said we got it wrong. We always believed that you needed to solve the Palestinian problem before there could be any normalization. Well, it turns out that for a variety of reasons, fear of Iran uh, on the part of the Gulf states, a desire by both Israel and the Emirates to improve its relations in Washington, possibility of selling the Emiratis uh, F-35s, 
and other sophisticated military equipment that this deal was done, not just with the Emirates, but with Bahrain. And now we see some sort of an agreement, not as expansive as Sudan, and there will be other Arab states. So all of that is the good news. And I think, frankly, in, a, in an arena like the Arab-Israeli conflict where you've had a war, in the last century, you've had a war in every single decade, 48, 56, 67, 73, 82. The 90s came and went without a major confrontation. Um, in large part because there was an effort by both the Bush one administration and two Clinton's administrations to seriously pursue primarily an Israeli-Palestinian agreement, which never materialized. And I think that the, the downside of all this, of course, is that Israel's borders are still far from secure. In the north, um, there is Lebanon, from which the Israelis withdrew in 2000, uh, but they're faced with a very strong um, organization, Hezbollah, which possesses hundreds of thousands of high-trajectory weapons, which in the event of a major confrontation with the Israelis uh, could do severe damage, uh, both to civilians and infrastructure. And, of course, in Gaza, you have Hamas, uh, seeking to consolidate its control and being pretty careful, and so are the Israelis lately, in trying to prevent another major confrontation. Um, so it's a mixed picture. The Israeli-Palestinian issue, which showed some promise under Oslo, however flawed the agreements were, never really realized its promise. And frankly, I do not see, you ask me honestly, to assess whether or not I thought there was a possibility, and I choose my words carefully here, of a conflict-ending agreement between this Israeli government and this Palestinian authority, I would say the process of that happening are slim to none. The issues that need to be negotiated, security, borders, Jerusalem, refugees, recognition of Israel as the nation state of the Jews, end of claims and conflict. Those six issues, the gaps are just too large. The, mm -hmm. the suspicion uh, and mistrust on both sides are just too deep. So I don't think we're on the cusp of anything that remotely resembles uh, a conflict any agreement. It's possible, however, that the normalization agreements that the Israelis have been engaged in will in some respects um, could have a salutary effect on this process. It may make the Israelis more aware that they have something to lose if they don't figure out a way to at least engage the Palestinians, and it may push the Palestinians who are now desperate, weakened, demoralized, and divided. It may push them into considering engaging with the Israelis. But let me make one thing clear. When I say engaging, I do not mean engaging on the core issues that will end their conflict. I don't see how that is possible right now or for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the Palestinian Authority is a good representation of the Palestinian people? I think it's increasingly unpopular. I think most Palestinians, young Palestinians for, for sure, are increasingly frustrated the two charges and of responsibilities or objectives of the PA since it was created, there are actually three objectives. 
and the Israeli occupation, build institutions of self-governance that are transparent and functional, uh, not corrupt, uh, and to build and create and negotiate a Palestinian state. I mean, none of these things have been realized. And I think the economic gains have been uh, very difficult, um, particularly now that the PA has, it has basically said that it will not accept any of the tax revenues that the Israelis collect on their behalf as a consequence of Mr. Netanyahu's threat to uh, to annex parts of the West Bank. So, no, I don't think I think the Palestinian Authority. I don't. If you looked at other examples throughout modern history of uh, of national movement trying to build institutions of good governance and negotiate their way out of uh, uh, an occupation and a very difficult relationship with Israelis, I don't think there's a precedent for that. I mean, most national movements fight their way out of, uh, out of, out of an occupation. You've got the Vietnam, you've, I'm sorry, you've got the Vietnamese uh, under French and American rule. You've got um, Af Afghans with respect to the Russians and the Americans. You've got the French, the Algerians uh, under French rule. Um, so there's no precedent for this. But frankly, at the moment, I think it, it, it's not my judgment. I think if you ask most Palestinians, they would argue they really can't live with the PA. It's not, it's not fundamentally advancing their interests, but at the same time, they have a hard time living without it because without it, you either go into chaos or you force the Israelis to, to do something they do not want to do, which is right. to assume responsibility. And do you think that there's a possibility for the Palestinian Authority to reform itself, or does it require a regime change? No, I think you, you're going to need a change in leadership. I'm Mahmoud Abbas is 85. I think basically, under other circumstances, he might have been the best partner that Israel never had. Um, I mean, unlike Arafat, he and and other and some of the other leaders of the Palestinian National Movement, most of whom are now dead, Abu Jihad. Uh, Salah Khalaf, Abu Yad. Abu Mazen is not a man of violence. Um, and I, I think he might have been a good partner, but there's a certain reality here that, you know, I can't fix. It's just a reality that has, has become just so overwhelmingly uh, consequential. And that is what the Palestinians want to achieve. Palestinian state on most of the West Bank and Gaza minus X percent, which would be ceded to the Israelis because of demographic and security reasons. A capital, a real capital in East Jerusalem, uh, not a faux capital in a, in a Jerusalem suburb. Some resolution of the refugee issue, which does not permit hundreds of thousands of Palestinians to return to Israel proper but would allow unlimited return of Palestinians to a Palestinian state and maybe maybe a symbolic return of some very small numbers to Israel proper. That that those set of aspirations do not mesh with the policies 
of the current Israeli government or any Israeli government that I can imagine um, in the future. I mean, that's the problem. So I just don't know what the answer to that situation is. I think I would say to you that that for the foreseeable future, we're going to be living in the following space. We're going to be living in the space between a Palestinian state or the idea of a Palestinian state that's too important to abandon on one hand but impossible to implement on the other. I see very little chance of a fundamental change, fundamental change in relations between Israel and the Palestinians that would lead to a, to a, a final settlement, conflict-ending settlement. Can't, I just can't see it. And back to what we're when you mentioned Oslo earlier, do you think that the Oslo Accords were successful? And if not, what went wrong in the negotiations? Uh, you know, we didn't, the, you know, these were done, and I was on vacation in the West Coast of Florida <laughs> when the State, the State Department Operations Center called and said, you better come back here because Secretary Christopher is on his way to California to meet Foreign Minister Perez and Foreign Minister Holst from Norway. We knew there was a, dis, a discussion channel that the Norwegians were hosting. We did not know it was a decision-making channel. Or we didn't know it was a decision-making channel that was actually going to produce as quickly as it did a, a, um, a declaration of principle. I mean, the problem, of course, was that it, it, it gave neither side assurances of what would come later. It was based on the notion that Israelis and Palestinians through an in series of interim steps, could deposit enough confidence and trust in the bank, in the figurative bank, so that when it came time to discuss the big issues, Jerusalem, borders, security, that there would be a basis, a foundation um, of better relations. None of that happened. Right. I mean, it just didn't happen. I mean, the the Israelis. Uh, I mean, and plus the negotiations were, were played out in a very difficult relationship. I mean, unlike Egypt and Israel, Israel and Jordan, Israel and Syria, Israel and the Emiratis, Israel and Bahrain, the sides were not symmetrical. You didn't have two states. You had an established state, Israel, and a national movement seeking to become a state. And that's create very difficult circumstances. Um, it's in, and then Rabin's murder of four terrible Hamas bombs in nine days in the spring of ninety of 96. Uh, all of these things just stressed this process. Mm-hmm. It's a wonder that it survived. It survived through the Camp David summit 20 years ago last July. But then, of course, it collapsed you know, in a paroxysm of violence from which the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations still haven't recovered to this day. Right. And and looking back over decades, do you think that the peace process should have been done differently? Um, well, the problem is that if you look at the way these negotiations between Israel and Egypt, Israel Jordan, and Israel-Palestinians were handled, the United States was not in the room when the initial 
decisions were made. I mean, I remember I was still I was at the State Department um, in the fall of 1977 when um, Moshe Dayan shows up at the State Department and he surprises my my predecessors with the news that he had been meeting secretly with Sadat's presidential advisor. And I mentioned I was on vacation in Florida when we learned the Oslo Agreement. The Israelis and Jordanians had been negotiating secretly and quietly even before the State of Israel was created. So we we got into this process in each of these cases only after the Arabs and the Israelis had come to certain understandings. So I would argue to you, and I get this question all the time about uh, the American role, and my answer is the same. Go ask the Israelis. I mean, a series of successive Israeli prime ministers, including the current prime minister, have engaged in secret negotiations with Palestinians. The Egyptian-Israeli thing worked out. The Israeli-Jordanian thing worked out. The Emirati stuff is working out. But it's really a question of what tactics Israelis and Palestinians adopted. We got into the game late, uh, which frankly I think is a good sign because I, I really do believe that the Israelis and Palestinians need to own their negotiations without the intrusion of the United States. And only when that happens will a third party broker, let's say it's the United States, be able to come in like we did, like Jimmy Carter did with Israel and Egypt um, in order to broker a deal. So, you know, you can argue, yeah, I mean, the peace process has worked in at least two instances, Israel, Egypt, Israel, Jordan. It came close between Israel and Syria, although I think in the end that was more mirage than anything else. And um, the Arabs and Israelis are finding a way to go um, into a new relationship um, between Israel and the Gulf. So on ba- on balance, I think it's you could say it's been mixed, but there have been some impressive achievements. Right. And, and why was there a focus, do you think, of starting the Arab-Israeli peace process with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Well, they're really, I mean, the, the Palestinian thing really came last. I mean, it was Israel and Egypt. Um, then, then, in the wake of the first intifada, Rabin made a judgment in 92 when he was defense minister that there was no military solution to the Palestinian problem, that Jordan was too weak to play a role uh, in its resolution that the West Bankers and Gazans were too beholden to the PLO. So Rabin made a judgment, which he formalized in the spring of 93. I remember a meeting we had with him. He used to meet with us separately without the Secretary of State just to share analyses. And somebody asked him flat out, would you consider negotiating with the PLO? This was March of 93 during his first visit with Bill Clinton, and it was clear from his body language that the answer was yes. And sure enough, by May, 
he had basically formalized what had been an informal channel between Palestinian and, and Israeli academics that became the Oslo Accords. So it wasn't so much, again, I, I think the focus for most of the years from 48 until the early 90s was not on the Palestinian issue at all. It was on the focus between Israel and the Arab states. Palestinians were perceived from 1948 to literally the late 80s, either as hapless refugees, terrorists, and it was only decades later that they entered the game with the 90, 1988 decision to recognize the possibility of two states, and then uh, in 89 enter into a dialogue first with the, the U.S., 93, enter into a mutual recognition agreement with the Israelis. So I think the, Pal the serious engagement on the Palestinian issue was a relatively recent phenomenon. Interesting. So why does it seem that the U.S. intelligence feeling was that we were predicating the, our, the resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Because the Arabs uh, and even several Israeli governments basically made it unmistakably clear that the Palestinian issue was critically important and needed to be resolved. I mean, you know, normalization between Israel and the Arabs has been going on for decades, quietly, discreetly. Um, there was a report in Haaretz the other day that that the Israelis had had a secret embassy in Bahrain for years. And the relations between Israel and the Emiratis have been quietly developing for at least a decade. And that would include the Omanis, that would include the Moroccans as well. But what formalized it, I think, were three things. The Gulf states' fear of a rising Iran, their concerns over transnational jihadi terrorists, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, their growing frustration with the Palestinians, exhaustion with the Palestinian cause, and the desire to gain strategic uh, benefits from Washington. I mean, trust me, and let's be very clear, there would have been no formal normalization between Mohammed bin Zayed of Abu Dhabi and, and speaking on behalf of the Emirates and the State of Israel without the Trump administration being willing and the Israelis acquiescing in the sale of F-35s. There would have been no normalization agreement, not then. So I, I think we need to be careful, even though you should read my Washington Post piece. I mean, it's pretty revealing in terms of what we got wrong. Yeah, but I, I think it's, it's incredible. I think it's, think, think it's important to understand that this is, you know, to use the word peace agreements between countries who are never formally in state of war is an important point. And I'm not trying to trivialize the importance of these agreements. They are important. They recognize a break 
in the Arab consensus and a willingness on the part of key Arab states to negotiate their own arrangements with Israel even while they pay lip service to the Palestinian cause. But I don't think we can should overstate them. These are what I call transactional deals. Now, they could become transformational if other Arab states join, if the agreements hold, particularly if the Saudis should normalize. And if you could get some kind of movement between the Israelis and the Palestinians, which I think you know, may happen on an interim process, but it's hard for me to see how, how because the gaps on the corridors are so large, they're Grand Canyon-like, how are you going to get uh, an agreement on the, on the big issues to end the conflict? Mm -hmm. And what does the Abraham Accords mean for the Palestinian people? Do you think that it it allows for an environment where it, it might be um, easier for peace to come between the Israeli and Palestinian people, or makes it harder? I think for the moment it it's well. Again, it forces the Palestinians to confront the dire nature of their situation because there's nobody in the international community anymore that's going to make the Palestinian issue the central priority of its foreign policy. And frankly, I don't think there's anybody in the region anymore that is willing to do that. So for the challenge for the Palestinians, I think, is that the reality that the Palestinian issue is becoming a local issue between Israelis and Palestinians. It'll affect the Jordanians for obvious reasons. But Maron ben Benisti, who recently passed away a, a month or so ago, once described the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a shepherd's war. And frankly, I think that's what it's becoming, a grim, long, hard slog between two peoples whose, whose futures are inextricably linked to one another. They're not going anywhere. And there's going to be no resolution of this conflict until both sides recognize that there are these mutual needs and requirements which need to be met. And I just don't see, I'm not judging here, I'm just reporting. I just don't see it. So I think the conflict is going to continue. I just, unless the Palestinians make some big decisions for either to change the reality on the ground through a massive nonviolent um, Gandhi-like movement of resistance. I mean, truly nonviolent. Uh, or they agree to some diplomatic initiative, which I think is highly unlikely. Or there's an Arab Spring in Palestine where people get fed up with the PA and they, I wrote a piece a while back, try to explain why was there no Arab Spring in Palestine. And it's an interesting notion. There hasn't been, and believe me, there's yeah, plenty, yeah. Of, plenty about the PA that needs to be changed. It's corrupt. 
It's highly politicized. There's rampant favoritism. Plenty of people, Palestinians, don't um, like the way it behaves. But why haven't they risen up? I think the one answer is because no matter how much they may dislike their own leaders, they dislike they dislike the Israelis more. Somebody asked me once in the eighties why I mean I asked I asked this Palestinian why Palestinians support Yasser Arafat. And the answer was really instructive. He said to me, Arafat's a stone I throw at the Israelis every day. So that gives you some sense of why there's been no Arab Spring in Palestine. Because right. the occupation is the overriding concern. But do you think that the Palestinian Authority is radicalizing their people? Radicalizing them? Yeah, I mean, I think they play on the fact, the reality, the grim realities of, a, of an occupation. Um, I think Palestinian media, um, through its hyperbole, uh, and extremist views and anti-Semitic views uh, bear a lot of responsibility for helping to validate the grievance culture that pervades Palestinian society. But I think the grievances flow from the material objective conditions on the ground. I mean, you're just never going to convince, which is why you've got, you have this huge gap between Israelis who look at Palestinians who who commit terror and violence against Israelis as in one way, and while Palestinians look at them in another way, you're not you're not going to change that culture. And even if the Palestinians, in their hearts, understand that terror against civilians is wrong and needs to be condemned, you know you don't you don't see that. You don't see the differences of opinion emerge in large part because separating yourself from the tribe or from the cause is extremely difficult. You see what's happening in Gaza with these young activists who held this online conference. Could you make the claim that um, there was a change of culture in the Gulf Sunni states um, and that maybe at a certain point their culture was also very anti-Semitic and very anti-Zionistic, and perhaps that's been changing in the past couple of decades. Right. There's no, there, there's no doubt about that. But the reason that they can make that change is that the Gulf states are independent entities. I mean, you can't. Which is why I might add the Egyptian and Jordanian peace treaties with Israel will remain cold while the Emiratis, who are distant from the actual conflict, hundreds of miles away from the actual conflict, have the discretion to change attitudes because there is no, I mean, you know, the Israelis aren't perceived as occupiers of Emirati land. That's the reason that that the Israeli-Emirati agreement will probably achieve more within, has already achieved more in terms of normalized relations 
between Israel and the Emiratis than the Egyptian-Israeli agreement or the Jordanian-Israeli agreement have achieved in decades because the Jordanians and the Egyptians have public opinions, public constituencies who are much more volatile and emotive. Jordan has large numbers of Palestinian uh, Palestinians resident in this population. Egypt has fashioned itself as the vanguard of Arab nationalism and a key proponent of the Palestinian cause. Gulf states are in another universe. They're untethered from all of, not all, but many of the complications that uh, would permit the changes that you've identified to take place. And I think that's a fundamental difference. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, um, for my my last question, I like to finish every episode with asking my guests, um, what do you think will take for peace in the Middle East to be possible? Um, You ever heard the expression that in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car? They don't wash rental cars because, yeah, because they care only (laughs) about what they own. And, This will happen once Israelis and Palestinians have a degree of ownership that they don't have now. And ownership in the Middle East, when I say ownership, I mean the desire to protect the negotiation, to want the negotiation, to believe that negotiation is critically important and must be protected and furthered, flows from two sources. Is there enough pain that the situation becomes so bad that you need to change the status quo, but the pain has to be accompanied by prospects of gain. If I do this, if I sit down, will I change the situation for the better? The reason why you don't have, we are light years away from an Israeli-Palestinian conflict-ending agreement. I choose my words carefully, conflict-ending agreement. And here's what that means, conflict-ending agreement. It means that an Israeli prime minister would stand before the Knesset and a Palestinian president would stand before the Palestinian Legislative Council and they'd say the following. We don't have peace. That's going to take years. But on the core issues that drive our conflict, borders, security, refugees, Jerusalem, recognition of Israel as the nation state of the Jews and ending all claims, we're done. We publicly acknowledge the fact it's over. No more irredentity to be pursued. No more claims to be adjudicated. It's finished. In order for that to happen, you would have to have Israelis and Palestinians so motivated by pain and gain that they would disrupt the status quo. Otherwise, If there's insufficient pain and there's insufficient gain, you and I are going to be having this conversation next year and the year after. Thank you. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Be well, stay safe, and we'll talk again. 